In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number seven, COINTELPRO. A warning. This episode features discussions of violence and hate crimes. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. March 8, 1971. Most Americans were glued to their TV sets as Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier boxed an epic 15 rounds in the fight of the century. But the most important knockout punch of the night was thrown not at Madison Square Garden, but in Media, Pennsylvania. And it was delivered not by a boxer, but by a pacifist physics professor and his friends. Dressed like ordinary cat burglars, they crept into a strip mall-style office park at the corner of Front Street and South Avenue. Within seconds, they wrenched open the door of one of the nondescript buildings with a crowbar. No alarm sounded, thankfully. Inside, the building was dark and empty. Then came the all-out scramble to grab as much loot as they could and get away before someone spotted them. But these burglars weren't absconding with cash. They filled their knapsacks with more than a thousand top-secret documents. The ordinary-looking office with no alarm system belonged to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the documents stored within proved what activists had been saying for years. The FBI was targeting them. Their homes had been bugged. Their mail had been stolen. They'd been followed. Undercover agents had befriended and sabotaged them. In blatant violation of federal law and the U.S. Constitution, they'd been treated like enemy combatants in their own country. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. Today, we're examining COINTELPRO, a covert and illegal FBI operation led by J. Edgar Hoover. From 1956 until activists exposed the program in 1971, the Bureau used COINTELPRO to target so-called subversives of all stripes and effectively operate above the law. Coming up, we'll dive into a true American horror story. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. By the mid-20th century, relentless, aggressive hunts for subversives were practically an American tradition. Perhaps the best known of those hunts was a precursor to COINTELPRO, the Red Scare. 
From the late 1940s through the early 1950s, this panic about the so-called Reds, or Communists, gripped the United States. Triggered by the Soviet Union's successful development of nuclear weapons, the widespread paranoia led to the erosion of American civil liberties. In 1951, the Supreme Court ruled Dennis v. United States that the free speech rights of suspected communists could be limited by the government. Anti-communist crusading became a way for politicians to make a name for themselves, most notably Senator Joseph McCarthy. Often on the basis of little or no evidence, he dragged people into the Senate chambers and subjected them to aggressive questioning. In the early 1950s, more than 2,000 federal employees lost their jobs after being targeted by the senator. Thousands more were fired in the private sector and blacklisted, in large part thanks to his influence. McCarthy's power finally broke in 1954. He went too far when he attacked the U.S. Army and ended up denounced even by his own party. But McCarthy's fall from grace didn't halt the Red Scare. It just drove it underground. Enter FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. He had an idea for how to keep chasing down the Reds without creating a public scandal. The FBI should secretly step up and carry Senator McCarthy's torch. That suggestion was in keeping with Hoover's politics. He had many sworn enemies. Among them, LGBT people, despite the fact that it's been long rumored that he was gay, women voters, and Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter. But he hated communists most of all. And his enemies beware. Professionally, Hoover was relentlessly effective, closing cases with ruthless efficiency. He was also arrogant, paranoid, and tyrannical. He often fired agents simply because he didn't like their appearance. If an intelligence report he ordered came back with findings he didn't like, the author would be transferred to a less desirable job, or fired. Basically, Hoover's FBI was a personal fiefdom controlled by its power-mad, paranoid director. He bent the Bureau to his own whims and many biases. There were few, if any, checks on Hoover's authority. The FBI gets its budget from Congress, but at the time, there was little congressional oversight of the Bureau. Even presidents were reluctant to interfere with Hoover. After all, he controlled thousands of spies. He wasn't above using the FBI to root out politicians' dirty secrets. In theory, the FBI was accountable to the Attorney General and the Department of Justice. But Hoover's agents were able to evade most DOJ oversight by just not telling the Attorney General what they were up to. As for the public, at the time, they had no right whatsoever to know what the FBI was doing. The Freedom of Information Act didn't pass until 1966. Hoover could do practically whatever he wanted. And in 1956, he wanted to help out the fight against communism with a new counterintelligence program, or COINTELPRO. The term counterintelligence generally refers to the collection of information about agents of hostile foreign governments. Spying on spies has always been part of the FBI's mission, 
but under J. Edgar Hoover's leadership, the definition of counterintelligence was broadened. Now, a person simply suspected of sympathizing with communists might become an FBI target. It wasn't even necessary to be an actual party member in order to end up in COINTELPRO's crosshairs. Once Hoover's FBI locked onto a target, they used four main spying techniques. Infiltration, psychological warfare from the outside, legal harassment, and extra-legal force and violence. Used together, their goal was to disrupt and dismantle political organizations without ever formally prosecuting them. These tactics were appallingly effective. Take infiltration. In the days of what's now called the first COINTELPRO, agents would infiltrate local communist party chapters. They'd pretend to be sympathetic local citizens. Then, at every party meeting, the undercover operatives would bring up controversial issues, criticize party leadership, or start malicious rumors. It was tough for communists to make any progress towards their political goals when FBI agents made sure every meeting ended in a fight. After the McCarthy hearings, American communists understood the federal government's willingness to spy on Americans. So it didn't take long for party leaders to figure out there were federal agents hiding among rank-and-file communists. But the FBI even managed to turn that to their advantage. Whenever gossip started circulating about feds infiltrating a chapter, the undercover agents would claim to have seen suspicious behavior from some fellow member. Always actually a loyal communist. They were often able to get dedicated members pushed out of leadership positions by labeling them as possible government agents. This practice was known as snitch jacketing. For example, in one incident, COINTELPRO wanted to destroy the reputation of a prominent student activist at the University of South Carolina. Her name hasn't been disclosed, so let's call her Jane. To take Jane down, the feds convinced local police to pick up two of her fellow student activists for questioning. While the two students sat in the back of a police cruiser, the FBI arranged for a dispatcher to radio the officer and tell him, Jane just called, wants you to contact her, says you have her number. After that incident, Jane was much less popular with radicals on campus. For a few years, J. Edgar Hoover was satisfied with harassing Communist Party members, the related Socialist Workers' Party, and others who didn't share his trust in capitalism. But by the early 60s, Hoover saw another threat rising. The budding civil rights movement. Hoover feared that if civil rights activists joined forces with communists, the United States could be at risk of attack. Maybe even a revolution like the one led by Fidel Castro in Cuba. So in 1963, Hoover sent his G-men to spy on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They found, to Hoover's surprise, no evidence of communist influence. In early August, a week before Dr. King led his historic March on Washington, a memo crossed Hoover's desk that read in part, despite every type of propaganda, they have never succumbed to the party's saccharine promises of a communist utopia. This wasn't what Hoover wanted to hear. 
he quickly sent back a response. This memo reminds me vividly of those I received when Castro took over Cuba. You contended then that Castro and his cohorts were not communists and not influenced by communists. Time alone has proved you wrong. His subordinates obediently rearranged their thinking. The stage was set for the next era of COINTELPRO, in which ruthless, violent attacks on black civil rights leaders became the operation's primary objective. That's coming up next. Hey, podcasters, Looking for a more lighthearted listen? Then I've got the perfect podcast for you. The new Spotify original from Parcast called Incredible Feats. Hosted by comedian and podcaster Dan Cummins, Incredible Feats is a daily show spotlighting true accounts of mind-blowing physical strength, mental focus, and bizarre behavior. Join Dan every weekday as he goes behind the scenes and into the achievements of everyone from freedivers and body modifiers to ultramarathoners and moms. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In 1963, the FBI's domestic spying program, COINTELPRO, entered a new era. Previously, it had been largely focused on the threat of communism. But after the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. led his 1963 March on Washington, everything changed. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover now viewed Dr. King and the broader civil rights movement as the most salient threat facing the United States. To counteract that threat, in September of 1963, Hoover requested and received permission from Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy to tap Dr. King's phone. The Attorney General granted the request mostly because he believed Dr. King was not a communist. Kennedy hoped proving once and for all that the Reverend wasn't America's Fidel Castro would allow Hoover to let go of his vendetta. As Kennedy predicted, the 1963 wiretap uncovered no evidence of communism. Dr. King wasn't himself a communist, nor was he collaborating with either the Communist Party or the Socialist Workers' Party, still the official targets of COINTELPRO. But this seeming exoneration did nothing to break Hoover's relentless focus on the civil rights movement. In October of 1963, he ordered all 10 COINTELPRO field offices to intensify their disruption of Communist Party activities within black communities. Dr. King and his inner circle were placed under constant surveillance, both physical and electronic. King was followed, hotel rooms he stayed in were bugged, and his closest associates had their phones tapped. By December 1963, just over a month after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, Hoover assembled the leadership of the FBI's Domestic Intelligence Division for a meeting. Its topic was, quote, exposing King for the clerical fraud and Marxist he is. That's cleric as in clergy, not as in clerical error. 
and the Bureau considered King a clerical fraud because their unconstitutional spying had resulted in the discovery of his extramarital relationships. Hoover believed that people would turn away from Dr. King if they knew he was having affairs while professing himself to be a faith leader. The plan was to leak Dr. King's affairs to the media. To Hoover's frustration, however, the journalists didn't bite. Even conservative reporters felt it was inappropriate to judge Dr. King by his sex life rather than his political advocacy. A setback. Still, Hoover remained determined. And if journalists weren't on board with his methods, his subordinates were with him all the way. An internal bureau memo expressed that the FBI agents invited to participate in taking down King were enthusiastic about the case and expressed their appreciation for the opportunity. Up in the White House, there were fewer allies. With Robert F. Kennedy still serving as Attorney General and President Lyndon B. Johnson new to the Oval Office, Hoover had to move carefully. He didn't want to immediately reveal how obsessed he'd become with Dr. King and the civil rights movement. So to balance out the politics of the groups he targeted, in 1964 he launched an official COINTELPRO campaign against white hate groups like the Ku Klux Klan. The Bureau really did infiltrate the KKK, as well as the American Nazi Party and an armed vigilante group called the Minutemen. In fact, they were far more effective at placing spies within these groups than in the civil rights movement. Mostly because at the time, nearly all FBI agents were clean-cut white men who had an easier time blending in at KKK meetings than civil rights marches. Unfortunately, after infiltrating the white hate groups, COINTELPRO agents didn't exactly dismantle them. There were no division-wide meetings about how to expose the extramarital affairs of KKK leaders. There was no stirring the pot at local gatherings. The real priority for COINTELPRO was still Dr. King. And internally at the Bureau, everyone knew that. So, in November 1964, one of Hoover's high-ranking aides, William Sullivan, typed up a letter and mailed it anonymously to Dr. King's office in Atlanta. The letter complained, quote, You know you are a complete fraud and a great liability to all of us Negroes. End quote. It went on to describe in vivid language King's alleged affairs and suggested that he had sex with both men and women. Finally, it closed with the ominous directive, quote, King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do it. There is only one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. End quote. Some defenders of the FBI claim Sullivan only meant to pressure Dr. King to resign his leadership position in the civil rights movement. But most people believe this letter was intended to drive Dr. King to suicide. Blackmail by a federal agent is, of course, completely illegal and unconstitutional. But the FBI was running out of options to please Director Hoover. What's now popularly known as the suicide letter 
was a Hail Mary attempt to stop the civil rights movement before Dr. King could gain even more followers. But Dr. King didn't even open the suicide letter before flying off to Oslo, Norway in December to accept the Nobel Peace Prize. At 35, he was its youngest ever recipient. While he was away, his wife Coretta opened the letter and correctly inferred it was the work of the FBI. A group of Dr. King's closest associates debated the matter and agreed that King should not respond. J. Edgar Hoover was between a rock and a hard place. His old COINTELPRO tactics, the ones that had succeeded in mostly defanging the American Communist Party, didn't seem to work on Dr. King. The more Hoover's FBI attacked him, the more Dr. King's following seemed to grow. A more self-aware man might have backed off at this point. Instead, Hoover doubled down on COINTELPRO operations, supposedly targeting white hate groups, which were quickly turning into a twisted tool in the fight against civil rights. Instead of trying to dismantle organizations like the KKK, the FBI simply planted informants, turning a blind eye to the horrors that their agents committed alongside Klan members, all in the name of gathering more intel. On March 25, 1965, Hoover's unethical and likely purposeful mishandling of the hate group may have cost 39-year-old Viola Liuzzo her life. Liuzzo, mother of five and white member of the NAACP, had just finished marching in Selma and was now ferrying a few fellow activists back to their homes. She had just one more passenger who happened to be a black man to drop off in Montgomery before making her way back to her own family. Sadly, Liuzzo never reached her destination. On a deserted stretch of highway, a red Chevy Impala began tailgating her vehicle. The men inside fired 14 shots into Liuzzo's moving car. One of the men riding in the red Impala was undercover FBI agent and Ku Klux Klan informant Gary Thomas Rowe. Despite being a government agent, he often took part in the violence perpetrated by the Klan. He's said to have even bragged about beating Freedom Riders with a baseball bat. Rowe called his FBI handlers immediately after the murder to tell them what had happened. But instead of holding him accountable for his involvement in a premeditated murder, the FBI protected their man. All the men present were charged with conspiracy to injure or intimidate persons for exercising their rights under the United States Constitution. Except Roe. Then, to tamp down public outrage, the FBI attacked the victim's reputation. Agents spread the rumors that she had abandoned her children to pursue interracial sexual affairs. When the Alabama Attorney General wanted to know which of the four men had pulled the trigger and murdered Liuzzo, the FBI would only allow him to interview Roe with two FBI handlers present. Naturally, Roe clammed up. He was later placed in the Witness Protection Program and given a job as a U.S. Marshal. This, despite two of the other men involved in the murder testifying that Roe was the gunman. This case was exemplary of COINTELPRO's operations during this era. 
Agents and informants embedded in white hate groups intimidated civil rights workers, perpetrated violent crimes against them, and reported back to Director Hoover. Under Hoover's relentless assault, black activist groups began arming themselves. In October 1966, college students Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale formed the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Oakland, California. Their ideology included black nationalism. That's the belief that black Americans should be granted political self-determination, often in the form of a separate state. The idea had previously been promoted by minister and civil rights activist Malcolm X, who was assassinated in 1965. But if those were the big ideas, the local FBI field office reported to Director Hoover that the Panthers were mostly spending their time serving free meals to local school children. Hardly a subversive activity worthy of FBI attention. But Hoover rejected the field agent's conclusions, honed in on the black nationalism, and demanded evidence that the Panthers were plotting a revolution. Obediently, the Oakland office typed up a new report, and this one indicated that the Black Panthers were a militant organization and a clear threat to the country. This was what Hoover had been waiting for, a supposed threat big enough to justify an official COINTELPRO operation against Black civil rights groups. Rather than hiding behind a campaign against white supremacists, now he could send his agents directly after the Panthers and their allies. On August 25, 1967, Hoover announced his new project in a memo which read, The purpose of this new counterintelligence endeavor is to expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of black nationalist hate-type organizations and groupings, and to counter their propensity for violence and civil disorder. From that day forward, COINTELPRO focused almost all of its resources on countering black activism. Hoover's personal vendetta against Dr. King had grown into a plot entirely dedicated to destroying the civil rights movement. If the history of COINTELPRO was pitched as a fictional story, it would seem so unrealistic nobody would read it. But we know it was real, deadly, and malicious, thanks to a mild-mannered professor willing to risk federal prison to expose the FBI. That's coming up next. Now, back to the story. In August of 1967, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover launched a new phase of COINTELPRO, specifically targeting what he called black extremist groups. Chief among these was the newly founded Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. But COINTELPRO continued to target Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as well as other civil rights organizations. In February 1968, two of Hoover's targets announced a merger. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was in talks to be merged with the Black Panther Party. Hoover was irate. He immediately issued a memo to his staff, clarifying his goals. It ordered them to, quote, prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the militant black nationalist movement, end quote. 
Hoover goes on to muse that, quote, Malcolm X might have been such a messiah. Martin Luther King could be a very real contender for this position should he abandon his supposed obedience to white liberal doctrines, nonviolence, end quote. Two months later, on April 4, 1968, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed on a second-floor balcony at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Next to him in his final moments were members of his inner circle, including undercover Memphis policeman Merrill Mack McCullough. As one of Memphis's few black police officers, McCullough had been directed to infiltrate King's inner circle during a local sanitation strike. The Memphis Police Department feared that the strikers were planning a violent insurrection. Though McCullough wasn't a COINTELPRO agent, the infiltration tactics used by Memphis law enforcement were straight out of J. Edgar Hoover's playbook, which is why many people, including members of Dr. King's family, suspect the FBI had a hand in the killing. In fact, the FBI launched its largest ever manhunt to find King's murderer, who was eventually identified as prison escapee James Earl Ray. He confessed and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. If Ray was set up to take the fall by the FBI, as many still believe, then Hoover not only would have gotten away with one of the most devastating assassinations in U.S. history, but also managed to get credit for catching the so-called killer. Whether or not he actually had a hand in the assassination, Hoover didn't seem to be satisfied. He wanted to see the entire civil rights movement reduced to rubble. And as he got older, the now 73-year-old FBI director was only getting more and more paranoid and bigoted. In the fall of 1968, he directed the Bureau to launch a far-reaching and expensive investigation of black bookstores. A memo dated November 8, 1968, ordered each field office to, quote, locate and identify black extremist and or African-type bookstores in its territory and open separate, discrete investigations on each to determine if it is extremist in nature. End quote. He also ordered agents to, quote, determine the number, type, and source of books and materials on sale, end quote. The FBI spent untold taxpayer dollars sending undercover federal agents to count books. At this point in time, the Bureau essentially was J. Edgar Hoover and vice versa. Even his strangest ideas went unchallenged. It was impossible to imagine him being removed from office by anything except death. His own death, that is. FBI targets turned up dead with some regularity. In between harassing bookstore owners, COINTELPRO also continued its more violent tactics, such as sowing unrest in black neighborhoods to keep people too divided to unite and organize. One 1969 memo reads, quote, Shootings, beatings, and a high degree of unrest continues to prevail in the ghetto area of southeast San Diego. Although no specific counterintelligence action can be credited with contributing to this overall situation, it is felt that a substantial amount of the unrest is directly attributable to this program, end quote. 
Lest you think that this memo is an indication of shame or a word of warning, it was titled Tangible Results. What was then the United States' only federal law enforcement agency was actually bragging about increasing crime rates. And that's not all. At 4.45 a.m. on December 4, 1969, Chicago police assassinated 21-year-old Black Panther Party chapter leader Fred Hampton in his bedroom. Though local officers fired the 99 shots that killed Hampton, it was a federal informant, Hampton's personal bodyguard, William O'Neill, who drew them a map of Hampton's home. O'Neill received $300 from the FBI, worth about $2,100 today, for the information that helped kill his employer. We could easily spend an entire episode just on Fred Hampton's death, or on the murder of Los Angeles Panther leader Bunchy Carter, or the intimidation of nonviolent organizer Stokely Carmichael, or the FBI agents who framed Black Panther Party leader Geronimo Pratt for murder. Of course, this was all illegal, unconstitutional, and well outside the FBI's official purview. But J. Edgar Hoover had amassed so much power by this time that nobody, even within the government, wanted to challenge him. He could tap the phones of congressmen as easily as Panthers. In Washington, everyone had a few secrets they preferred not to see leaked to the papers. The director of the FBI reports to the Attorney General of the United States, who theoretically should work to ensure that the FBI operates legally. But by 1969, Nixon-appointed John Newton Mitchell had taken over that job, and he happened to be a criminal himself. Not to mention, he favored dramatically expanding the FBI's authority to surveil Americans. With Attorney General Mitchell on Hoover's side, COINTELPRO expanded its operations in the late 60s and early 70s. Agents went after feminists, environmentalists, and other new left groups. They intimidated, harassed, and incarcerated American Indian movement leaders. COINTELPRO even used blackmail to force closeted LGBT people out of federal jobs, despite the fact that J. Edgar Hoover was rumored to be gay himself. By the early 1970s, the FBI's involvement in dozens, if not hundreds, of shocking crimes against activists was essentially an open secret to American activists. Potential targets openly traded tips on how to recognize a wiretap or spot a federal informant. But unfortunately, nobody could prove COINTELPRO existed. The FBI hid its secrets carefully and people who weren't politically aligned with COINTELPRO targets dismissed claims of government overreach as paranoid. Without outside interference, COINTELPRO might have operated throughout the 1970s and beyond. But in late 1970, a group of activists decided it was time to expose the FBI's horrifying tactics once and for all. Their leader was William Davidon a professor of mathematics and physics at Haverford College in Pennsylvania. He was a longtime anti-war activist who served on the board of the American Civil Liberties Union. In the past, Davidon had openly provoked the federal government 
by announcing he would withhold his federal income tax payment in protest against the Vietnam War. Now the time had come for a subtler and more effective approach to striking back at the feds. Davidon formed a group he called the Citizens Commission for Investigating the FBI. Their sole objective? Steal and disseminate records that would reveal the existence and tactics of COINTELPRO. Professor Davidon approached only the people he felt he could trust with his life. He chose well. Of the eight members in the Citizens Commission, every single one was absolutely dedicated to protecting the mission. They prepared for their operation without leaving any evidence of their plans. When it came time for the burglary on March 8, 1971, the team was fast, efficient, and successful. The commission escaped from the FBI's Media Pennsylvania field office with more than a thousand classified documents. To make sure that they didn't leave a smoking gun file behind, the burglars took every single piece of paper in the entire office. It was a stroke of good luck that the burglars got what they wanted from the robbery. They had no way to know exactly how lax the FBI had been in storing documents. They might just as easily have risked federal prison for a bunch of HR files. Instead, the files they stole contained conclusive evidence that the FBI was spying on American citizens and blatantly lying about its priorities. After the burglary, the eight members of the Citizens Commission split up, each taking a share of the stolen files as they drove through the night to a farm in rural Pennsylvania. If any of them had been pulled over and arrested on the way, the other seven would still have had enough documents to expose COINTELPRO. Luckily, none of them were stopped. They made it to the remote farm and began sifting through the files. The very first smoking gun they found was a memo directing FBI agents to enhance the paranoia in left-wing activist organizations and get the point across there is an FBI agent behind every mailbox. There it was on official FBI letterhead, the proof that vindicated every paranoid 60s radical who had ever whispered, I think I'm being followed or someone's been stealing my mail. The FBI was instilling this paranoia on purpose to break them. The next morning, March 9th, the burglars called a Reuters journalist, Bill Wingle, from a payphone. They made a statement explaining what they had done and why. It ended with the words, in doing this, we know full well the legal jeopardy in which we place ourselves. We feel most keenly our daily responsibilities to those who depend upon us and who we put in jeopardy by our own jeopardy. But under present circumstances, this seems to us our best way of loving and serving them and, in fact, all the people of this land." Wingle, to their frustration, declined to publish the story. He didn't want to be responsible for encouraging more burglaries. But other journalists soon got wind of the story through FBI sources and tips directly from the burglars. On March 24, 1971, the Washington Post covered it on the front page. A massive manhunt was launched, 
with over 200 FBI agents dedicated full-time to finding the burglars. But thanks to their absolute devotion to secrecy and unity, none of them were ever caught, even as they began publishing the stolen files. J. Edgar Hoover knew he'd been beaten. COINTELPRO had avoided meaningful government oversight because of its secrecy. A tidal wave of public outrage would change that. Within the year, he announced he would be disbanding COINTELPRO. The FBI would not stop its domestic counterintelligence activities entirely, but the Bureau would seek authorization for individual operations on a case-by-case basis, rather than lumping them together into larger projects with collective targets. In March of 1972, the complete collection of stolen documents was published in anti-war publication Win Magazine. Two months later, on May 2, 1972, J. Edgar Hoover died at home of a heart attack. President Richard Nixon eulogized him fondly. But the public, as Hoover had anticipated, felt differently. Widespread outrage over COINTELPRO helped lead to the formation of the Church Committee. This Senate Select Committee, formed in 1975, investigated crimes and civil rights abuses by the U.S. intelligence establishment. The investigation revealed that the FBI, during the COINTELPRO years, likely burglarized at least 200 homes and opened more than 215,000 pieces of private citizens' mail, all without search warrants. As a result of the Church Committee's investigations, President Gerald Ford officially banned United States government employees from engaging in political assassinations. Strange to think that that wasn't already prohibited. But in spite of all the public outrage and investigations, and even though COINTELPRO was disbanded, no new regulations were adopted to prevent similar abuses in the future. In fact, a 1981 executive order signed by President Ronald Reagan actually legalized many of COINTELPRO's previously illegal surveillance tactics. Today, the Bureau still operates in relative secrecy with little public or congressional scrutiny. So does the Department of Homeland Security, a companion agency founded in 2002 to focus on counterterrorism. The DHS, like its predecessor, has used that secrecy irresponsibly. It's frequently been accused of spying on American citizens who have committed no crime. In the 1950s, Vague accusations of communist sympathies were enough to justify civil rights violations. In the 60s, it was black nationalism. And in the 70s, counterculture groups and anti-war radicals were acceptable targets. In 2019, leaked FBI documents revealed an ongoing undercover initiative to infiltrate so-called black identity extremist groups. And in 2020, Heavily armed DHS officers have been deployed to suppress racial justice protests in several U.S. states. This dark and ongoing history brings to mind the words of Benjamin Franklin, often repeated by activists on both the left and the right. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. 
Perhaps someday, no matter where we fall on the political spectrum, Americans can stand united in defending the civil liberties of all people. Even from our own country's federal law enforcement agencies. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal Number 6, the story of the 2000 general election and Florida's high-stakes vote recount of paper ballots. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Listeners, you don't want to miss Incredible Feats, the all-new Spotify original from Parcast. Host Dan Cummins free-falls straight into the weirdest, wildest achievements of all time. New episodes air every weekday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.